0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Well, on today's Beeson Podcast, we reach back into our archives here at Beeson Divinity School to present one of the outstanding lectures we have heard. This one comes from the year 2000. It was presented by Professor Peter Stuhlmacher, who is now a emeritus professor of New Testament biblical theology at Eberhard Karls Universität Tübingen, the University of Tübingen in Germany. This university uh, antedates the Reformation. It was founded in 1477. It's where Gabriel Biel, who was the teacher of Luther's teachers, actually taught for a number of years. In the early Reformation, it was the academic home of Philip Melanchthon before he moved to Wittenberg to work with Luther. So for many centuries, Tubingen has been one of the leading theological academic centers really in uh, Europe and throughout the world. It today houses two thriving uh, faculties of theology, one Protestant and the other Catholic. On the Catholic side, this is where Professor Joseph Ratzinger taught before he became Archbishop Cardinal and now Pope Benedict XVI. It's also where... Hans Kuhn has taught, a Catholic of a somewhat different stripe than uh, the Pope. But its Protestant theology is very deep and rich. I remember visiting uh, Tumingen one time, and the person who was showing me around said, let's have lunch. And we stopped at a little uh, restaurant tavern, and as we were eating, he said, this is where Hegel used to eat lunch. Well, I didn't feel any smarter from having eaten uh, where Hegel ate, but uh, the atmosphere is rather uh, rarefied in such a place. Well, biblical theology at Tübingen, especially in the 20th century, was in a sense dominated and overshadowed by the figure of Rudolf Bultmann, who of course did not teach at Tübingen but at Marburg, but nonetheless his theology was pervasive in the academic world. Our speaker on this uh, decent podcast, Professor Peter Stuhlmacher, actually offers a kind of countervailing perspective to Bultmann and the many different sources of theology that come from Bultmann's work. Peter Stolmacher himself was born in 1932. Uh, He's taught in many different places, uh, Nuremberg, before coming to Tübingen, where he served uh, as one of the leading professors there, but really his influence extends throughout the academic and theological world. He's written many, many books, some of which Uh, we're grateful to say, have been translated into English. And those of you who are interested in biblical theology, New Testament studies, might want to read some of Professor Stolmacher's books, Reconciliation, Law, and Righteousness. His essays in biblical theology is a great book. Another book is Jesus of Nazareth, Christ of Faith, kind of a look at the historical Jesus question. How to do biblical theology is another one. Historical Criticism and Theological Interpretation of Scripture, a very important book. And then the lecture that we're going to hear now from Beeson Divinity School focuses on justification, and this itself has been published in a book translated into English as Revisiting Paul's Doctrine of Justification, A Challenge to the New Perspective. And I would be lax if I did not mention uh, Peter Stolmacher's great commentary, his almost magisterial commentary, I think we could say, on Paul's letter to the Romans. So we're going to hear today from one of the leading figures in post-World War II German theology, a biblical theologian who takes seriously the revelation of God in Holy Scripture and has a particular focus on Paul's great doctrine of justification by faith alone, which of course was revived, uh, recovered in some ways by Martin Luther in the 16th century. So let's listen now to Professor Peter Stolmacher speaking to you from Beeson Divinity School, in our biblical studies lectures from the year 2000.
1: Well, thank you for the warm welcome, and it will be definitely not my last word <laughs> what I'm talking to you, but that is in, in fact the first one, and I try to keep in time. First, some preliminary remarks. The Christian Bible, consisting of Old and New Testaments, has not been handed down to us in order that we might seek out only those stories and sayings that impress us, and then leave the rest or even dismiss it. Instead, we should think through these two-part books and recall its texts until we discover that the one God who created the world and chose Israel to be his own people speaks to us through the biblical writings and had our salvation in mind while we all were still weak and sinners, or even before we were in the world, as Paul has put it in Romans 5. Now one of the Bible's essential themes is justification. When we read Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome, we see that for the apostle, the gospel of God concerning Jesus Christ is the gospel of justification of sinners by faith alone for Christ's sake. According to Romans 1.16-17, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel to everyone who believes. And this revelation goes first to the Jew, but also to the Gentile, and it is in keeping with the word of God from Habakkuk 2.4, the one who is righteous by faith shall live. Paul confesses this gospel of God's righteousness And he goes on in his letter to the Romans, uh, goes on to explain to his audience what is involved in the righteousness of God as revealed in the gospel. As once Adolf Schlatter has correctly seen, God's righteousness is the theme of the entire letter of Romans. And in the three lectures which I have been invited to give, I would like us to concentrate upon just this theme of justification. The first letter today, lecture today, is an introduction to the conceptual world and historical background of Paul's proclamation of justification. The second one tomorrow is devoted to the missionary perspective from which Paul sought justification, and the third and Thursday. deals with the content of his doctrine of justification. So my first lecture is on the gospel of God's righteousness. Paul wrote the letter to the Romans as a converted Jew. More precisely, the risen Christ granted him grace and apostleship so that he might bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles, including the people of Rome. You can see that in the very first beginning of Rome. Because the apostle prior to his conversion belonged to a group of Pharisees who were committed to the law and had learned in the school of Rabbi Gamaliel first in Jerusalem to work with the Holy Scriptures and the doctrines of the Jewish faith, he had a precise knowledge of the Hebrew and Greek Bibles as well as the faith traditions of ancient Judaism. He presupposes a knowledge of the Mosaic law even among his addressees in Rome, and he addresses them just as those people who know the law in Romans 7, 1. And presumably, some of them came from the group of the so-called God-fearers who gathered at every Jewish synagogue in the diaspora. They did not get circumcised. But they were religiously interested in the Jewish doctrine of the one God and His will, and they knew the law and the prophets as well as the traditional Jewish prayers and confessions from the synagogue services. For us, these circumstances mean that we have before us in Romans some statements that the apostle and the original recipients of the letter understood well, perhaps right away but they become transparent to us only once we have clarified the background from which the apostle starts. That is especially true for the doctrine of justification. Paul sharpens this doctrine into a message about the justification of the ungodly. Abraham is for Paul, our forefather, who was the first to believe in the one God who justifies the ungodly. And this faith of Abraham was reckoned to him as righteousness, according to Genesis fifteen six. Moreover, in his mission from God, Christ died for the ungodly while we were still weak and in our sins. Of course, these statements are understandable of their own, but they gain a sharper profile when we examine the traditional milieu from which they come and ask, how they can be understood against this background, and I'm now going just into this background. First thing, justification as an end-time act of judgment. If we wish to understand the Pauline doctrine of justification, we must first consider that justification involves an act of judgment. Justification is decidedly located in the final judgment. As passages from the late prophets of the Old Testament, the so-called Isaiah Apocalypse in Isaiah 24 through 27 and Daniel 7 and 12 show, Israel and the nations are heading for an end-time judgment of God's wrath according to the Old Testament Jewish expectation. Only the saved community of God's elect will emerge from this judgment purified. The pre-Christian Qumran texts speak about the triumph of God and the archangel Michael over the powers of Belial, that's the devil, and about the rising, as they put it, of the Son of righteousness over the saved community of Israel and the cosmos as a whole. And you find it in one of the fragments called 1Q27. According to the Essenes of Qumran, the pious cannot achieve acquittal in the judgment by their own perfection either now or in the future. Rather, they are completely dependent on the mercy of the almighty God. Hence in his style anticipating Paul, the supplicant in 1 Qs 11 affirms, and now I read from the Qumran texts, For mankind has no way and man is unable to establish his steps since justification is with God and perfection of way is out of his hand. All things come to pass by his knowledge, he establishes all things by his design and without him nothing is done. As for me, if I stumble, the mercies of God shall be my eternal salvation. If I stagger because of the sin of the flesh, my justification shall be by the righteousness of God, which endures forever. When my distress is unleashed, he will deliver my soul from the pit and will direct my steps to the way. He will draw me near by his grace, and by his mercy he will bring my justification. He will judge me in the righteousness of his truth and the greatness of his goodness, he will pardon all my sins, through his righteousness he will cleanse me of the uncleanness of men and of the sins of the children of men, that I may confess to God his righteousness and his majesty to the Most High." So far, the text from Qumran. And in the Ezra Apocalypse, written at the end of the third century AD, there's a similar confession. I read. For in truth, there is no one among those who have been born who has not acted wickedly. Among those who have existed there is no one who has not done wrong. For in this, O Lord, your righteousness and goodness will be declared when you are merciful to those who have no store of good works." Yet in spite of this confession, fourth Ezra speaks of a final judgment in which God's mercy and patience will no longer have any effect. Instead, righteous deeds shall awake and unrighteous deeds shall not sleep. Reward awaits good works, while retribution awaits evil works, and only a few men and women obtain access to the place of rest, as Fourth Ezra says. They are the the ones who have been victorious, in the difficult struggle for a life lived according to the precepts of the Mosaic law. For the godless wicked, there is no mercy, according to Fourth Ezra. And from this now emerge, second thing, the idea of justification. Behind the idea of justification stands a long process of working out this tradition in Judaism. According to Ezekiel 18, People stand or fall before God as individuals on the basis of their own righteous or wicked deeds. Although according to popular Jewish wisdom righteousness leads to welfare and respect, while unrighteousness leads to affliction and sickness, the book of Job establishes that even a man beset by nothing but disaster can be righteous in God's eyes. Job not only found in the one God, his heavenly advocate and savior, he also was allowed to see him. At the end of the book, Job, despite his inability to understand the almighty God completely, is established in the right by his God over against his friends, and he has to intercede for them. You can see this for the second chapter. Individual Jewish sinners learn through penitential prayers such as Psalm 51 to acknowledge and confess their sins and to ask God for forgiveness. And from 2nd Isaiah onwards, all history acquires for Israel a judicial character. God stands by his servant Israel in the legal battle with opponents and accusers among the peoples and helps Israel to vindicate. By virtue of the righteousness that proceeds from God, Israel will be finally established in salvation. At the same time, according to the song of the Suffering Servant from Isaiah 53, the chosen servant of God helps the many before God to obtain a new right to their existence by his innocent, vicarious suffering. He does so by giving up his own life in death as an asham, as the Hebrew text says, that is a way of wiping out guilt and also by interceding for them. The many here are that part of Israel which was not deported to the Babylonian exile of 587 BC. And the Gentiles are also or even maybe included into these many. And now from this broad concept of justification of Israel, the justification of the ungodly comes from. Although the precise language of the justification of the ungodly does not yet appear in the Old Testament, the idea of this is materially present already in important sections of the Old Testament. Otfried Hofius, my colleague and friend, has shown this in a fine essay. Thus, for example, Abraham is chosen apart from all merit according to the Yahvistic tradition of election in Genesis 12 1 through 3. Israel is shown grace by God out of his free divine love and mercy according to Hosea 11. And 2nd Isaiah expresses himself very similarly concerning uh, the demonstrations of the one God's mercy and salvation to Israel. Moreover, the Old Testament grace formula, as Old Testament scholars like to put uh, want, or usually put it, the Old Testament grace formula disproves the among Christians widespread idea that the Old Testament mainly speaks above of all of God's wrath and vengeance. And the formula runs The one God is a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. And the use of just this formula in the Decalogue in Exodus 20 contrasts it with the language of God who is jealous against transgressors of his will. To be sure. The one God punishes the iniquity of the fathers down to the great-grandchildren, but his grace reaches much farther to the South's generation. The jealous God is therefore put in the shade by the much more gracious God, and his judgments are not an end in themselves, but only the means to establish righteousness and welfare over against all injustice. And out of the Pauline terminology: first of all, God's righteousness. The expression "God's righteousness" occurs repeatedly in Paul's letters. And in, Paul, in Philippians 3.9, Paul speaks moreover of the righteousness from God. And this terminology goes back to the Old Testament and early Judaism. According to for example first Samuel 12:7 and Micah 6:5 and also Daniel 9:16 the history of Israel is filled with the righteous acts of the Lord. And these righteous acts signify, signify salvation and deliverance for the threatened people of God. Hence some English versions translate not merely them as righteous acts but as saving acts or saving justice of the Lord. And these saving acts are also praised in the rule of the community of Qumran, which I quoted before, and also in the Psalms. God's righteousness is considered the quintessential activity of God to to create salvation and well-being for all his creatures. The righteousness of God is also active in judgment, giving security and hope to those without legal rights, and denouncing the wicked. In the penitential prayers of the Old Testament, God's righteousness is appealed to as His serving mercy, as we see, have seen before. And I only uh, uh, cite one more example from Daniel 9, 16 and 18. O Lord, in view of all your righteous acts, let your anger and wrath, we pray, turn away from your city, Jerusalem. We do not present our supplication before you on the ground of our righteousness, but on the ground of your great mercies. In sum, God's righteousness in the Old Testament and early Judaism means above all, the activity of the one God, to create welfare and salvation in the creation, in the history of Israel, and in the situation of the end time judgment. And now these famous words, justify and to be justified. Returning to Paul and Romans, it becomes clear that Paul's discourse about justification is of Old Testament and early Jewish origin and has a forensic ring into it. When the verb to justify is used in the active voice, it designates god's own act of justification and the passive voice to be justified usually means in paul the acceptance which is extended to or withheld from humans in the judgment however once in these verses the to be justified also occurs for the acknowledgement that sinners must pay to the judge god in the uh, the, the just god in the final judgment That is in Romans 3, uh, 5, citing Psalm 51, 6. And the famous expression to reckon as righteousness describes the acknowledgement of righteous deeds in the final judgment. While the noun justification, Greek dikaiosis, in Romans 4, 25 and 5, 18, stands for the process and result of the justification carried out by God. And in typical Jewish manner, Paul talks about the righteousness of God synthetically, as once Fahlgren has put it. That is, he uses it to designate God's own creative and saving activity as well as the grace gift of righteousness in which believers share. Hans Kazemann, my teacher, therefore spoke aptly of the insoluble compound of power and gift that determines the Pauline discourse about God's righteousness. And now it's not so that Paul is the first in early Christianity to speak about justification at all. Instead, he takes up what others before him, Christians before him, had already said. And so I come to the traditions about justification prior to Paul. Paul's statements about justification are not merely reflections of the Old Testament and early Jewish faith tradition. The apostle was led to his teachings when the crucified Jesus appeared to him in divine glory on the way to Damascus and called him to be his minister to the Gentiles. After this spectacular call, Paul was baptized into the Christian community in Damascus and became more exactly acquainted with their doctrinal traditions. However, once Paul himself became active as a missionary, he had to coordinate his own apostolic commission and teaching with the office and doctrinal tradition of the apostles appointed before him. Paul reached this agreement with the Apostles by stressing the sacred independence of his missionary commission over against that of the other Apostles on the one side, and by also submitting his gospel to the Jerusalem pillars for examination on the other. And he received their approval and emphasizes in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, that he, Paul, preaches the same gospel as all the other apostles. And in verses three through five, he even quotes this gospel verbatim. Christ died died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Kephas, then to the 12th. In this easily learned uh, four-line faith formula, The death of Jesus is understood from the perspective of Isaiah 53 as death for our sins. And it was probably Jesus himself who provided the impetus for this interpretation of his death on the cross by, by the apostles. And this is especially important for the theology of justification because Isaiah 53 verse 11 says that God's servant will justify many through his sufferings. Christology and justification are connected for the apostles, including Paul, especially on the basis of Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. And one can read the same thing in Romans 4, 25, where Paul quotes another Christological formula. Jesus, our Lord, and now I quote, was handed over to death by God for our trespasses and was raised by God for our justification, end quote. Christological statements about justification were thus already given to Paul in the apostolic faith tradition which he inherited from Damascus and also Jerusalem. And Paul quotes and comments upon the boldness of these pre-Pauline traditions about justification, inciting and alluding to it in Romans 3:25 through 26. Let me quote. God installed Christ publicly as the place of atonement. The Greek word, uh, the word is there, hilasterion. God installed Christ publicly as the place of atonement by virtue of his blood as a demonstration of his, that's God's, righteousness through the remission of the sins previously committed under God's patience." End quote. In this text, which presumably goes back to the Stephen Circle in Jerusalem, Jesus' death and God's righteousness are connected not by, by mean, only by means of Isaiah 53, but additionally, Through the Christological exposition of Leviticus 16, that is the day of the atonement tradition. Good Friday was and is for the Christians the day of the atonement for the Christian church. And Jesus' death on the cross on Golgotha is the great divine sin offering effective through Jesus' sacrificial blood. God installed Christ as the text says, as the place of atonement, that is the correct translation of Helasterion, Hebrew poet as the place of atonement for the demonstration of his not judging but saving righteousness. He demonstrates his righteousness by effecting through the sacrificial death of his son, the remission of all the sins committed during the period of his patience, mainly with Israel. Much as in Romans 2, this patience means the patience that God exercises to his own special people, while the righteousness of God can be interpreted, if one will, if as God's faithful, uh, the, the, the covenant faithfulness, which creates for the people of God, by the free grace, the forgiveness of those sins that preceded the appearances of Christ, Jesus, and faith in him. And we finally come full circle once we assume, with two of my tubing colleagues, that Paul's fundamental doctrinal statement built upon Psalm 143:2, uh, that, quote, a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, end quote, may be traced back to the missionary congregation in Antioch and perhaps even to the same Stephen Circle who produced uh, these sayings about Hilasterion. Paul could fit his own uh, the, well so the, his own statements about justification so effectively by just putting all these traditions together and probably drawing consequences from that. The sayings, quoting in 1 Corinthians six eleven about the baptized being washed from their sins, sanctified and justified in baptism, also seems to have pre-Pauline roots. And from all these texts cited, it is very rare that people allude that there's a pre-Pauline tradition of justification, but after all, there is one. From these aforementioned traditional texts, it can be seen that Paul built his own doctrine of justification on the basis of the Holy Scriptures and the doctrinal traditions which had already been developed before him, both in the early church in Jerusalem and the mission churches of Damascus and Antioch. So the Pauline doctrine of justification had, in coming out, ecumenical roots, it gains its special profile from the fact that Paul incorporated his own experience of God's calling into justification tradition and then bound together the individual statements about it thematically. Paul himself saw himself accepted, as he says in Romans 15:7, by the grace of the living God on the road to Damascus. He understood the gospel of God concerning Jesus Christ that was entrusted to him to be the message of the revelation of God's righteousness. And he gave the word of reconciliation, which God had established as a direct counterpoint to the revelation at Sinai, its proper place within the global horizons of apostolic ministry, missionary activity. We have to deal about this tomorrow. And now I come to Paul's call to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul made his personal stake in justification clear to his beloved congregation in Philippi, as they too were threatened by Jewish Christian false teachings that declared Paul's gospel to be in need of supplementation. Aroused by anger over the appearance of such people, the Apostle writes in Philippians 3, and I quote again, If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet, whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. End quote. Here we have all in one place the element of the event of justification that Paul considered essential. The young Paul, proud of his impeccable Jewish heritage and pharisaic way of life, had persecuted the Church of God and of his Christ out of zeal for the Torah. After all, The Church, with its confession of Christ and its orientation toward Christ's instruction, seemed to have broken with the Sinai covenant. But then, when he was surprised on his way to Damascus by the appearance of the living Christ, Paul could see and had to see that the brilliance of the glory of God on the face of the exalted Christ far exceeded the glory of the Torah. At the same time, he had to admit that his holy seal for the Torah had not brought him closer to God, but rather had made him a fighter against God's ways in Christ. Ever since then, sin for Paul consisted not only of individual transgressions of the commandments, but could also include pious seal for those commands. Armed with the knowledge that the crucified and exalted Christ is the Son of God to whom God has given the divine name Lord, according to Philippians 2, Paul gave up everything that had previously been near and dear to him. His righteousness based on the law he now considered to be worthless and mere dung, as he says, literally untranslated. Instead, the real point for him was the gift of the righteousness by faith that comes from God. His whole thought and endeavour were aimed at knowing Christ Jesus even more deeply, sharing in his sufferings, and then attaining the resurrection from the dead through the fellowship of these sufferings, as God has promised to those who are his. It is hard to imagine a more radical t- uh, turnaround in life than the one described here. And this turnaround made Paul the apostles to the Gentiles, but it also brought him lifelong enmity from his former Jewish friends who could hardly see in the apostle anything other than an apostate. They took action against Paul in the same way as he had done against the Christians before him, and they also attempt to hinder his preaching of the gospel. Added to this was the criticism from Jewish Christians. From the beginning, they had mistrusted the radicalness with which Paul has suddenly begun speaking against the law and for Jesus Christ. But they did not want to move away from the Torah as far as the apostle himself did. And so, after the so-called Antioch incident about which we read in Galatians 2, verses 11 through 21, they organized a regular mission against him that was effective as far as Rome. And Paul dealt with his Jewish Christian opponent harshly and sarcastically even. But from the first letter to the Corinthians onward, he also clearly showed that the accusation that he wanted to do away with the law was completely unjustified as his own teaching are concerned. Regarding the question of the law, Paul was not able to reach complete agreement with the great apostles before and beside him. Nevertheless, he never broke with Peter nor James, the Lord's brother. The one gospel of Christ that bound them to him and him to them was more important for all three of them than the individual questions of soteriology and ethics. What held these men together under this gospel was their parallel experience of Christ's calling. The living Christ had accepted them again after severe failures and had enlisted them all in his service. Peter had betrayed Jesus and he became the bedrock of the church of God and of his Christ only because Christ Jesus interceded for him and appeared to him as the first of his former pupils. James, the Lord's brother, did not seem to think much about uh, his brother during his lifetime and was led to a knowledge of Christ only through the Easter appearances which, made also, uh, which was also made to him. And so Peter, James, and Paul all had a kind of experience of justification, and this is what kept them together from denouncing each other, quite contrary to our Christian denominations. And Paul saw himself as called by the risen Christ to preach the gospel of God concerning Jesus Christ above all to the Gentiles. He was thus involved in a special way in the ministry of mission to the nations which the exalted Christ had given Peter and the other disciples in Galilee. Beginning in Jerusalem, they carried out this ministry in the conviction that the second coming of Christ would only come once the gospel of the kingdom of God had been proclaimed, as it says in Matthew 24, uh, 14, in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Paul defined the geographical goals and extent of his missionary commission above all from the Holy Scripture, but he also had to coordinate his activities practically with the Jerusalem apostles. And this happened above all at the so-called Apostolic Council in Jerusalem. Here it was formally uh, formally agreed that the Jerusalem pillars would take the gospel to the Jews, while Barnabas and Paul would take it to the Gentiles. They could leave the Gentiles whom they converted uncircumcised, but they had to take up a collection among them for the poor in the original church to show the solidarity of the mission churches with the Mother Church in Jerusalem materially and practically. And Paul kept to this agreement. He carried out his mission in the Eastern Mediterranean world, as he says in Romans 15, 19, from Jerusalem as far as around as Illyricum. He understood himself as the special servant of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles who would delay the end time events long enough for the mission to be completed in the sense of Matthew twenty four fourteen, And finally, in bringing the collection to Jerusalem, as we all know, he lost first his freedom and then his life. From our brief sketch, it will be clear that for Paul, The gospel of God concerning Jesus Christ is a power of God that concerns all people and determines the course of salvation history. This apocalyptic breadth of the doctrine of justification must not be diminished by limiting the gospel of God's righteousness to the message of the forgiveness of sins for individual sinners who confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. What is involved in the demonstration of God's righteousness through the atoning death of Christ and in his resurrection for the justification of the many and in his ongoing activity as Lord, Advocate, Savior, and Judge of the world, this is nothing less than the establishment of the salutary right of God over the whole cosmos. In 1904, William Vrede from Breslau Proposed the thesis that the doctrine of justification is not Paul's primary doctrine, but only his polemical doctrine. It becomes, as Rader says, quote, understandable from Paul's life struggles, his disputes with Judaism and Jewish Christianity, end quote, and was supposedly developed only for these disputes. But this thesis leads just as surely into error as does its revival by Albert Schweitzer. In 1930, Schweitzer wrote, I quote, The doctrine of justi- righteousness by faith is a subsidiary crater which has formed within the rim of the main crater the mystical doctrine of redemption through the being in Christ. End quote. It is clear from Galatians and Philippians that the Jewish and Jewish Christian opponents of the apostle did in fact play a role in a way in the formation of Paul's doctrine of justification. But this doctrine is not exhausted by its polemical use against the so-called Judaizers, and this is shown by Paul's report of his call in Philippians 3 as well as by the relatively unpolemical statements about justification in in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. The polemical accents also fade into the background in the comprehensive presentation of his gospel in Romans. So we have to about think some other direction than Vrede. For the Apostle Paul, the gospel of God's righteousness involves precisely that which Rader and Schweitzer disputed, namely, the faith-producing message of salvation for Jews and Gentiles par excellence. Paul understood by justification not only the forgiveness of sins, but rather first and foremost, the end-time forensic work of salvation that God, through his crucified and exalted Christ, carries out on behalf of all humanity. If one thinks through the texts about the vicarious atoning death of Jesus in Second Corinthians 5:21 and Romans 3:25 through 26 in Jewish-Christian categories and not in European in Jewish-Christian categories then a, a dichotomy in Paul between a juristic a doctrine of redemption on the one side oriented around justification and a mystical doctrine of participatory doctrine of redemption on the other, oriented around being in Christ, is out of question. Believers in Jesus Christ already participate in Jesus' death and new life through their baptism, but they remain filled with the hope of righteousness, because they walk not by sight, but at first only by faith. According to Paul Israel was elected for t- through Jesus Christ already in Abraham but this election has not yet been fulfilled it will come to fulfillment only according to Paul when all Israel has been redeemed from its sin and brought to the goal of its election by the Christ deliverer who will come from Zion this is in Romans 11:26 Justification for the apostle is the quintessential structural law of God's gracious work in salvation history and this so to speak the, the rule according to, to which this uh, gracious works of God functions is God has imprisoned all that is gentiles and Jews in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all in and through Christ and you find it literally in Romans eleven thirty two. And now I sum up. Looking back, we have gained a whole series of important exegetical insights. We have recalled the Old Testament Jewish background, the early Christian ecumenical roots, and the forensic horizon of the Pauline doctrine of justification. We have seen that the gospel of God's righteousness that Paul proclaimed is not exhausted by the message of the forgiveness of sins for individual Jews and Gentiles. Rather, it involves the saving message which must be passed on to all the peoples of the world concerning the end-time rule of God that the one God will be established through his Christ. The spreading of this message by by the Jerusalem apostles and Paul moves history towards its goal and justification designate the quintessence of the creative, gracious dealings of God with Gentiles and Jews. The crucified and risen Christ is for Paul, the apostle, the messianic lord of the world appointed by God. As such, he has a threefold task. He is God's guarantor for justification of all those who confess him as Lord and Savior from the day of his exaltation to the right hand of God until and in the final judgment. He is second, the judge of the world, appointed by God himself. And third thing, he has And he has the mission of delivering all Israel in uh, appearing from Mount Sinai in the end time. And the goal of of this activity of Christ is the establishment of God's kingdom and reign. And we have to speak about this tomorrow. Thank you for your patience. We are still in time.